Good morning, and the Lord bless you. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, how gladly we ascribe honor and glory to your holy name. You're so justly worthy. And now we turn to your word and pray that by that same Holy Spirit who wrote it, you will take its truth and speak to our hearts. I pray, Lord, that as your word is shared this morning, these of your people here and those who will listen by tape later on may be comforted and encouraged. But I see so many people who really know you and love you, who are serving you faithfully and truthfully and sincerely and correctly, and yet who have times of depression and distress as they see themselves as nothing but failures in your service. And yet, Lord, they need to know the truth of your word. And so may this be a session when hearts can be uplifted and challenged, but above all, may we come to understand a little more of the mind of God. And so, may we not only turn our minds to increasing the information of your word, but may we expose our hearts to truth, and in this way come to live the life that you would have us live. And we ask this prayer, expecting nothing but blessing, for we ask it through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, some years ago, somebody wrote a book called God is an Englishman. Now, don't you believe it? Take the word of an Englishman, it isn't true. He isn't even a Canadian. He isn't even an American. Uh, God is God. Now, we know that. But I've said that because it's surprising how we expect God to think the way we do. We are creatures of culture, and we have thought patterns and ways of living, and somehow we expect God to think the way we do. And we have our plans, and we have all our preparations, and then we expect the Lord to come along and sign his name at the bottom, and when he doesn't, we, we sometimes say, Lord, you're slipping, what's happened? After all, this is the way we've been thinking. And a verse which has meant so much to me this summer is Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. You needn't turn, you know the words. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways aren't my ways, saith the Lord. If you, want to, if you want to understand the economy of America or England, where you have two leaders totally sincere, people whom we admire, President Reagan, Mrs. Thatcher, other nations the same, so sincerely doing what they think is right, and yet getting nowhere. The answer is very simple. And my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways aren't my ways. And I want to show this to you as I talk this morning about the missing success in the life of the believer. And as I prayed, I want these words to come as an encouragement to many of you here and those of you who are listening by tape. Please go on listening because this could mean something to you, whoever you are and wherever you may be, whichever country you're in, especially if you're a missionary overseas. The Lord bless you as you listen. You see... We know what success is. Success is bigger and better. Obvious. If it isn't bigger, if it isn't better, when it isn't successful. As some of you may be engaged in sales, and your eye is always on the graph. You know what? If it goes up, you smile. 
If it levels up, watch it. If it goes down, look for another job. Because success is bigger and better. That's man's idea. But that isn't God's idea of success. I want to give you a definition. If you're writing anything, write this down, please. This is success according to the mind of God. Success is obedience to the known, revealed will of God, regardless of the consequences. Success is obedience to the known, revealed will of God, regardless of the consequences. You see, we always look at the consequences, and God always looks for the obedience, and that makes all the difference. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, for I suppose the greatest success story in the whole world, or shall I say in the whole of eternity, Philippians 2 and verse 9, wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name, not a name, the name, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that's success, ultimate success. Nothing greater, nothing more marvelous, nothing more perfect than that. But that success came as a result of obedience to the known revealed will of God. I do always those things that please the Father, not my will but thine be done. And look what the consequences were of obedience. Verse 5 of the same chapter. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. You see, in the eyes of the world, our Lord was the greatest failure who ever lived. All the promises, all the prophecies, misunderstood. And there must have been many people who, when he died, said, What a pity. He was such a nice young man. He, you know, he was so good. He was so kind. And, oh, what a shameful end. How sad to end that way. The greatest failure the world has ever known. But then you see, success is obedience to the known, revealed will of God, regardless of the consequences, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him. Now, I want to bring this word this morning because, as I mentioned before, some of you here who really love the Lord, young and older people, and some of you listening might take, maybe missionaries, I, I'm saying this because twice in my experience, I've uh, come across missionaries overseas who were contemplating suicide. One was a German and one was a Norwegian. And they both, both said the same thing. I've done everything I can. I've 
struggle and I've done this and this and there's nothing left. I might as well finish it. And I was able to say to them, isn't it good that you've come to the end of your rope and you realize that? But I realized that they were physically debilitated and worn out as people do in many pressures, times of pressure. And some of you uh, may be discouraged. And one of the greatest discouragers in the world is Satan himself. I was talking to one of the fellows here yesterday who is discouraged. And the devil is encouraging him in his discouraging. Finding all the more reasons why he should be discouraged. And feeding in discouraging thoughts so that you can be discouraged. The last thing the devil wants to see is a joyous, rejoicing Christian. When you're discouraged and when you're gloomy and when you're down in the dumps, you're no, th you're no threat to Satan and no good to God. And so let this be an encouragement to some of you who really are uh, being obedient to the known revealed will of God. And all you see is, well, it isn't what you see, it's what you don't see. You see other folks going up and up and up and up and you say, boy, I don't know what's wrong with me. Nothing wonderful ever happens to me. Well, you're following the divine pattern. You're just going down and down and down. See, take your eyes off the consequences and keep your mind on the obedience. I want to show you this in the lives of one or two young men. Look with me in Isaiah and chapter 6. The prophet Isaiah, chapter 6. When this chapter takes place, he'd be, what, late teens, early twenties, the age of some of you folks here at Bible school. And uh, it makes uh, an interesting study. Here is a young man facing his future, looking to God for guidance as to regard his future. Now, some of you are looking to God for guidance regarding your future. Well, notice where he began. He began in the presence of a holy God. Now, may I stress this point, the holiness of God. One of the things missing in much preaching today is the holiness of God, and the other is the lordship of Christ. And in, in many uh, sly, simple ways, the holiness of God is being degraded. It struck me the other day, I've got an, an old King James here, and mine says, Holy Bible. Now look on the back of your Bible. Now I, I know many mod, I know you've got a good translation, I know it's telling the truth. But uh, you've, in many cases, the word holy is missing off the back now. New American Standard, and uh, the New International, another glamorous, exciting, uh, selling names. I'm not, refer I'm not suggesting for a moment that the contents aren't good. But uh, it's an interesting fact that the word holy is slipping off. And this is where you need to start. And I'm talking about the missing success in your life, as you think it is, the missing success. And it all begins when you measure up to the holiness of God. Reading. In the year that King Uzziah died... And if you're a Bible student, backtrack and see why Uzziah died and what his life was 
and how tremendous and wonderful and marvelous and superb he was until he was strong. And then his heart was lifted up and he transgressed the holiness of God. That's the significance of the words in the year that King Uzziah died. I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's where you begin regarding service for God. We're thinking of Isaiah, a young man, contemplating service for God. And notice the interesting teaching in verse 2. This gives us the divine order of importance in service. Talking of the six wings these creatures had, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he did fly. Two he covered his face, that is worship. With two he covered his feet, that's your walk. And with two he did fly, that is your work. See, the divine order of importance is first of all my worship of a holy God. That's the most important thing in my life, my worship of a holy God. Secondly, my walk, which is based on my worship of a holy God. And then thirdly, my work, which is the outcome of my walk, which is based on my worship of a holy God. Now, we have inverted that. We think that the service is the most important. As I said the other day, again illustrating my thoughts are not your thoughts. The American pattern, and especially you good Baptists here, it's go, man, go. That's it. Go, man, go. God's thoughts are, come, man, come. Totally different, totally different. And so the big thing here is the holiness of God. And then your life, your walk, should be the outcome <clears throat> of your worship. And the work that you do should be a reflection of the walk. And if you haven't got a walk to back up your work, then stop until these two measure up. One of the biggest tragedies I've found, especially in our churches today, I'm thinking of pastors and, and other Christian leaders who, uh, whose walk doesn't back up the word that they say. That's called being a hypocrite. Where you, you know all the right words, but your life, you've never turned belief into behavior. Your life doesn't illustrate what you say. That's vital. And here's the lesson. First, my worship of a holy God. Then my walk before a holy God. Then my work. First of all, then, you have this sight of the holy God. Then you have, verse 5, confession. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, I don't believe for a moment he had a filthy mouth, or he had a dirty mind. The whole character of Isaiah 
is inspiring in its beauty and its simplicity and its honesty. And yet, when he stood in the presence of a holy God, that's how he felt. If you study the lives of the saints, the great saints of the Christian faith, whether they're Catholic saints or Protestant saints, you'll find that every one of these people is overwhelmed with a great sense of their own unworthiness. They're always conscious of their own sinfulness. Like Peter said, Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Now, the reason why these people react like that is because the nearer you get to the light, the more it reveals. And the closer you are to God, the more conscious you are of your own weakness. And if you choose to live in the fringe area of Christian life, in the gray areas, you can get away with anything. But the nearer you come to the light, the more it reveals. And that's why this young fellow here is completely challenged. First you have confession, but then uh, you have cleansing, verse 6 and 7. Then threw one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. So first you have confession, then you have cleansing, <clears throat> and then you have commission. The commissioning of God, verse 8. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. <clears throat> and he said, Go. Uh, notice, by the way, in, verses, in verse 8, the uh, inference of the Trinity. The JWs will tell you that the word Trinity is nowhere in the Bible, which is true. But the indication is there, especially so here. Whom shall I, singular, send? Who will go for us, plural? Three persons in one God. One God saying, whom shall I send? And then who will go for us, the Trinity? Then said I, here am I, send me. And he said, go. Now when I was a young Christian, I often heard messages dealing with this, the life of this young man here. And they all ended with the word go. And I was left with a picture of this young fellow in late teens, early twenties, all on fire for God, going out and doing tremendous things for God and going on and on in strength and power and majesty and glorious things happening. That's what I thought. But the wonder and the beauty of the prophet Isaiah is the total opposite. Look with me as we go on in verse 9. He said, Go, tell his people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not. And see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, make their ears heavy, shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. Now, make sure you understand what God is saying to this young fellow. Here he is, seeking to be commissioned by God, seeking the mind of God, the will of God for his future, and all lined up, and God says, go, and he's all fired up to go, and God says, now wait a minute, son. 
realize that when you go, no one will listen to you. You'll preach your heart out, there'll be no results. You'll slog away year after year, and there'll be nothing to show. No wonder Isaiah said in verse 11, Then said I, Lord, how long? How long do I go on like this? And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. How long? All your life. All your life. Now make sure you realize that. Here's a fellow, young man, late teens, early twenties, longing to serve God, willing to go, and God said, all right, you can go. But these are the terms of the sending. You will have no success. You'll see no results. You'll have no blessing. Now, notice that Isaiah can do one of two things. He can say, uh, dear God, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, I didn't think it would be like that. I, I want to change my mind and do something else. Thank you for asking me. I think I would have said that. Probably you would have done. But the greatness of Isaiah is this, that he said, thank you, Lord. And he went because success is obedience to the known, revealed will of God, regardless of the consequences. I call this the success of failure, because that's all that God promised him. And he stepped out, and if you examine the mechanics and the outcome of the life of Isaiah, that's what it was. There were no tremendous revivals and glorious things happening, not at all. Year after year, just this. You say, well, uh, well, he wrote a book. Yes, but <laughs> nobody ever read it. It was being written in his lifetime. There must have been people who said to Isaiah, son, why don't you give it up? I mean, here you go, you're preaching your head off and no one's listening to you. And he must have been tempted many a time. But you see, Success is obedience to the known, revealed will of God, regardless of the consequences. And we can truly thank God. And when you get to glory, make sure you thank Isaiah for this. Because if he hadn't continued, we'd never have had the book of the prophet Isaiah. And if you took Isaiah out of the Bible, we would be very much the poorer. You would never sing Messiah at Christmas if you hadn't got Isaiah in the Bible, for example. And also, too, uh, maybe you don't know, but on the mission field, if there's one book which means more to missionaries than every other book, it's the book of the prophet Isaiah. Because there's so many words of comfort and encouragement and uh, kindliness. You know, it came to me not too long ago as I was reading through these wonderful words of comfort that the first person who heard those words was Isaiah himself. Can you see it? Here he is, beginning your age, you folks in Bible school, and then going on, uh, maybe to my age, slogging away year after year, with nothing to show at all. And then, every now and again, 
the Lord brings to him a marvelous word of comfort, and his soul is uplifted. Look, for example, in Isaiah chapter 40. The, the Bible is full. Isaiah is full of these words. And I want you to, when you read these words of comfort, always remember that the first person to hear them was Isaiah. And if you are one of the people like Isaiah, inasmuch as you're serving God, and as far as you know, you love him, and you're doing all you can, and you have little to show. And there are many, many people in our churches, for all the one big shot, there are hundreds of thousands of little shots who don't even go bang. They don't even make a whimper. And you may be one of the little nobodies. Remember, these words are for you. Look, for example, in Isaiah 40, how it begins. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. And the fellow who needed it most was Isaiah himself. Look at verse 27. See the mind of Isaiah in this. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, that's the holiness, fainteth not, neither is weary, there is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might he increaseth strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. <coughs> <coughs> But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. And I love to think of Isaiah as the Lord by his Holy Spirit inspires him. And he's writing down on that vellum or parchment or papyrus, whatever it is. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And you know, the, a better Hebrew translation is, they that expect from God shall change their strength. They who expect from God shall change their strength. You see, the secret of a changed life is an exchange life. And look, for example, at the next chapter, verse 10. You see Isaiah, one sad day, if you like, writing these words. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Now take those words to yourself. You who see so little success in your life, you who never are able to do service for God in the ways you would want to. I'm sure when Isaiah signed on for service, he had marvelous thoughts of, he'd be a big shot doing this and this and this. And God put him away down there and kept him down there. I repeat, that's the greatness of the man. Anybody can be a big shot when things are going tremendous. It takes something which is superhuman, non-human, to keep on going when you're down there all the time. Look at verse 17, the same chapter. Here's Isaiah again. When the poor and needy seek water, 
and there is none, and their tongue faileth for thirst. I, the Lord God, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers in high places, and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water, and the dry land springs of water, and so on. All for him. Look at verse chapter 42. Verse 3 is so precious to me, and it would be precious to Isaiah. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. See, you may see yourself as a bruised reed. You know, a reed is a useless plant. It grows in waste places. And a bruised reed is a useless plant in a waste place in a broken condition. Couldn't get much lower than that. A useless plant in a waste place in a broken condition. And maybe you feel like that sometimes. And uh, smoking flax, that refers to the little lamp that they, the little oil lamp they used to have, you know, with oil in. And it has a little piece of flax, which is the wick. And when the oil has all, the, the, the wick doesn't burn. It's the oil that's sucked up and the oil is burnt, giving off the soft light. But when the oil is gone, then the flax goes on burning on its own. And burning flax makes, doesn't give light. It gives a smoke which <coughs> makes you cough and is obnoxious. And uh, all you need is some more oil, some more the Holy Spirit, a greater sense of his presence. So many pictures here for Isaiah. Uh, chapter 43 is uh, tremendous, the middle of verse 1. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God. Look in chapter 45. Spend some time, if you have time, looking at these promises and identify yourself with them, especially you who are discouraged. 45, verse 2. I will go before thee. I will make crooked places straight. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron. I will give thee the treasures of darkness. Do you think you're in the darkness? So many people say, I got, I've got no light. It's all dark. God says, I'll give you the treasures of darkness. There's treasures in those darkness, not when you see them, when you find them. God will give you, I'll give you the treasures of darkness, the hidden riches of secret places, that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. And there's a lovely verse in chapter 46. As I look around this morning, I can see there's a fair sprinkling of snow on the top. In some cases, the snow is melting. <laughs> Nevertheless, there's a verse for you folks who've uh, got snow on the top, referring to myself. Verse 4. Maybe this was Isaiah as an older man, I don't know. Even to your old age, 
I am he, and even to her hairs will I carry you. I have made, and I will bear, even I will carry, and will deliver you. And so he goes on. This blessed man Isaiah, thank you Lord for this dear man Isaiah, with his faithfulness year after year, showing to us as never before that success is obedience to the known, revealed will of God, regardless of any of the consequences. And again, you, you see, we get our eyes on the consequences. Jesus did not say, well done, thou good and fruitful servant. What did he say? Well done, thou good and faithful servant, you see. Not fruitful, faithful. We always look at the fruit. And God looks at the faithfulness. We want the consequences, and God wants the obedience. That's why the Lord's const constantly, I do always those things that please the Father. Now, having looked at Isaiah, look with me in Jeremiah chapter 1. Verse 4. And uh, if you're alert, you'll find it was exactly the same for Jeremiah. Verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the body, I knew thee. Before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a child. Or I I'm too young. Here's a young fellow, teens. I I'm too young for the job. But the Lord said to me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go to all that I shall send thee. And whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. See, I have this day set thee over the nations, over the kingdoms, to root out, to pull down, to destroy, to throw down, to build, and to plant. As I was meditating early this morning, I thought of Major Thomas's message last night, of those three words, you know, of sent and went. And here they are, just the same story over and over again. They were sent, and they, went, and they stayed put. That's, that's the greatness of these men. We will be sent, uh, and to us it will be said of us, they went, but with many of us, we don't stay there. If we don't see the consequences, then we think we're failures. The glory of these men is that they were sent, and they went, and they stayed put. That's the glory of it. And if you know the, the book of Jeremiah, it's a glorious book. For 40 solid years, he carried on his ministry. And he had, in it, as it were, one ministry. He was ministering to Jerusalem and the little kingdom of Judah. He came at the end of a reign of material success. And the people were riding the crest of materialism, which always takes you downhill. And he was calling a nation back to God. And they wouldn't listen. And he would threaten them and warn them, if you don't come back to God, he'll destroy Jerusalem. 
And they said, don't be stupid. This is God's holy city. He wouldn't destroy Jerusalem. If you don't come back to God, he'll burn his golden temple. Now we know you're crazy. God wouldn't burn his golden temple, Solomon's temple. And so for 40 years, this young fellow carried on. No one listened. He was beaten, tortured, imprisoned, condemned to death, starved. And he kept on keeping on. Stickability. It requires stickability to be a prophet of God. And he had a double dose of it. And the, the tragedy and the glory of it was, there came a day when he walked through the streets of burning Jerusalem with corpses on either side. And every word he said came true. God vindicated him. Everything he said. And he broke his heart. Just the other day I was looking in the book of Lamentation, chapter 3. Turn there. We don't often use this book, the book of Lamentations. This is the book of the broken heart. He was faithful. And he saw his country fall to pieces. And finally destroyed. And God may this never happen to America. Or to Britain. And chapter 3. I wrote in my Bible the testimony of a man of God. And here he is. I'm going to read some of these verses. We don't often read them. But they're tremendous words. I am the man that has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He hath led me. And brought me into darkness, but not into light. Surely against me is he turned. He turned his hand against me all the day. Now please note, this is success. This is success God's way. The success of failure. Verse 5, he hath builded against me and compassed me with gall and travail. Set me in dark places. Verse 7, hedged me about that I cannot get out. Verse 9, enclosed my ways with hewn stone, made my paths crooked. Verse 11, turned aside my ways, pulled me to pieces. Verse 12, hath bent his bow. And so he goes on. And verse 18, and I said, my strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. But he still stayed put. Remembering mine affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall. My soul hath them still in remembrance and is humble in me. And then comes this marvelous nugget of pure gold. Verse 21. This I recall to mind. What is the this that he recalls to mind? You have all those verses of chapter 3 where he goes down and down until he hits rock bottom and stays there and there isn't a ray of hope in, the, all, in the, all those verses in chapter 3. And uh, again, he, he, he was sent. And he went. And to the glory of God, he stayed put there in all the misery and the failure. But verse 21, this I recall to mind. Therefore have I hope. He had hope in the midst of all this calamity. What was his hope? It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. 
Great is thy faithfulness. That's where the words of the hymn come from. <clears throat> Next time you sing those lovely words, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. Don't be carried away with the beauty and the, and the delight of the words. Just think of the man who said them. It was Jeremiah at the bottom of the pit, with not a ray of hope, but remembering the glorious fact that the Lord's mercies, His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. In other words, as we would say in New Testament language, I am complete in Christ. The Lord is my portion. Therefore will I hope in Him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for Him, to the soul that seeketh Him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. And that takes you back to the message of yesterday. Take my yoke upon you. You see, remember those words? It was come. What was the next word? Take. The next word, learn. And the last word, find. Come unto me. Take my yoke upon you. Learn of me. And then you find what? Rest. Rest. Not success. Rest. And here's the same thing. It's good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of God. It's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. And he's talking about himself. When he was a young teenager, God put him under the yoke and he stayed there. And he learned about God. And he is one of the giants. This is why you have, they call these men the major prophets. Because they, in their generation they had nothing to show. But they were the giants of God's whole economy. Look with me in Ezekiel. He comes next door. Chapter 3. Yes, just the same with Ezekiel. The three major prophets, all young fellows, all starting off with the same promise. God promised them nothing but failure. And they chose to say, thank you, God, I, I'll take it on those terms, and I'll praise you. V chapter 3, verse 4. He said unto me, Son of man, go get thee unto the house of Israel. Speak with my words unto them. Thou art not sent to a people of a strange speech and of a hard language, but to the house of Israel. Not to many people of a strange speech and of a hard language, whose words thou canst not understand. Surely, had I sent thee to them, they would have hearkened unto thee. But the house of Israel will not hearken unto thee. That's the promise. They won't listen to you. For they will not hearken unto me. For all the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. Behold, I have made thy face strong against their faces, and thy forehead strong against their foreheads. As an adamant harder than flint have I made thy forehead. Fear them not, neither be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. In our modern-day language, God would say, Son, you'll just be banging your head against a stone wall. 
That's all. That's your ministry. Go and bang your head against the stone wall. Would you take it? I'd say, God, you must be joking. Me? But see what he said. Verse 14. So the Spirit lifted me up and took me away. And I went in bitterness. Bitterness. And the heat of my spirit. But the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. The hand of the Lord was strong upon him. And for Jeremiah, the hand of the Lord was strong upon him. And for Ezekiel, the hand of the Lord was strong upon him. And you know what? You've got more than Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel ever had. You've got the indwelling Christ. He says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And God sends you. And the one who sends you chooses the program. And you are sent. And in most of our cases, it was said of you, you went. Will you stay put? Even though you got nothing to show. These are words of comfort for little nobodies who will never be anybodies. You'll always be what you are. Isaiah always was what he was. So was Jeremiah. So was Ezekiel. They were, they were in their generation. They were nobodies. Despised and rejected. The Lord himself despised and rejected. This is a heavenly pattern. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And your ways aren't my ways. And somehow, if God doesn't give us the way our culture operates, we think we failed. Jesus said, you are not of this world. Even as I am not of this world. As my Father sent me, so send I you to be a failure, if necessary. Sometimes God does give you a blessing. Some God, sometimes God does let you see it. But to the super-Christians, God lets them see nothing. It takes all the guts in the world to stay put when you have nothing to encourage you. That's why Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel are the major prophets. Anybody can be a big shot when it's successful. Let these words comfort you. If you've got nothing to show, and as far as you know, you've yielded your life to Christ, you're conscious of His presence, you say, Lord, take me and use me. And then the devil gets you in his trap. You start looking for results. And you don't see any. And the devil says, as he said to the young man yesterday, you're wrong. You must be in the wrong place. Nothing's happening. I wonder if the devil said that to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. I'm pretty sure he did. But they had one answer hand of the Lord was strong upon me. And as long as you practice the presence of Christ, which is the whole secret of living, you've got the answer to anything. So let's come to the most important part of this message. You know what it is. Bow your heads and close your eyes. And for 60 seconds, we'll sit perfectly quiet and let the Lord speak to you. Let him bring some of those 
promises of Isaiah. Fear not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, I am thy God. Cash in on the promises of God. And this is thanksgiving, thank him for them. And then go on to be all that God would have you to be, even a nothing. Sixty seconds of quietness from now. Thank you, Heavenly Father, <clears throat> for these blessed young men who were sent by you and who willingly went and who stayed put all their life. Lord, what courage, what faithfulness, what committal. <clears throat> Thank you most of all for your own beloved Son who was sent and as we meditated last night, he stayed there. I do always those things that please the Father. In the eyes of the world, a hideous failure. In the eyes of eternity, the most blessed and glorious success ever known. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him. And you said, Lord Jesus, just as my Father sent me, so send I you, as my father sent Isaiah, sent Jeremiah, sent Ezekiel, so send I you. Lord, I pray especially now for people hearing my voice, maybe missionaries overseas or Christian workers who are despondent because they don't see a tremendous outcome of their work. May they join the band of the faithful and realize that this is the hallmark of success to be obedient regardless of the consequences and this we ask dear Lord for your glory and for our encouragement and for the extension of your kingdom and we ask it through our Lord Jesus Christ Amen